Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. come to the end of the year. I can't I can't kind of believe it. Here we are. It's it's, it's this middle of December. Time this Wild. drops, it'll be Wild. very close to Christmas. Um uh let's get a quick update from you guys. There's I know there's a lot happening in all of our lives. So Oh really? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> RJ, your your head's still on straight. What's going on over there? I am so Keith Votes, who is a lovely priest in uh, New York, and I believe a listener, posted something on Facebook today, which captured how I feel, which is he said, this is the time every year when I when I realize that, you know, Advent makes Holy Week look like a cakewalk. <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel, right? Because Holy Week is just one week. Yeah. That's but true. But Advent, you know, and, and, and when you're going through Holy Week, you're not thinking about, like, buying the perfect gift for everyone in your family at the same time. So I'm in a good place, but I have not bought a single Christmas present yet. I have um, 10 days to do so. Uh, but you know, yeah, just coming up to Lessons and Carols this Sunday and Christmas Eve, and I want everyone in my life, my whole church, my whole family, everyone, to have the perfect Christmas and for Jesus to be perfectly pleased with me. Mm. And at some point, I'll let go of that, but I'm still holding on to it. Okay. So that's where I am. We'll talk to you next week when you've crashed Where, where are you, Sarah Condon? Exactly. <laughs> when I, I mean... Where are you, Sarah Condon? <laughs> I've already been... What is it? Like 12.30 my time. I've already been to like Target, Walmart... A booster club meeting and Starbucks. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're just, we're kind of in the thick of it, but I'm always grateful that my job slows down for this like period of time. It's sort yes. of like perfect. Yes. Um, and so I can kind of kick into high gear and make sure everything gets taken care of. The academic schedule is a good schedule. It, it is. Yeah. It's very, it, yeah. I, mean, I it, miss it. it. Yep. It's, I miss it's it. really, it's really great, especially, you know, when Josh is, is doing what you're doing, which is like, you know, in total overdrive plus mm-hmm. parties. Yes. You know? so, yes. <laughs> yeah, but it's, you know, it's good. Dave, how is your advent going? My advent is, I counted it up the other day and I did 38 speaking engagements over the, since September 13th. That's if you include preaching, like, which is a, at our church, it's a four times a day thing, but 38, um, so I'm profoundly sick of the sound of my own voice and yeah. I'm a little low anthropology. So out, <laughs> but uh, I'm also grateful and all that sort of stuff. And I, I, but I feel the way you do, Sarah. Like I feel like I get to like basically the third week of December, and instead of cooking into high gear, I get to start focusing on just fun stuff. Yeah. Um, because my students are gone, and once you know, a lot of mockingbird stuff is is sort of put to bed for a little bit. Yeah. So yeah, I. Uh, I'm, uh, I feel like it's just as, as our, my kids sort of age into the years of playing sports that require, you know, Sunday games and things like that. It's just, and multiple practices a week. It's, it feels like a new level of self-induced, um, 
insanity but mm. at the same time there's a lot of joy in it it's fun to watch I, my i enrolled our middle child in like a like an elementary school film class and that's been the oh, cutest thing good so for great. ever like nothing nothing's better than like what a 10 year old's version of a horror film i mean that's like yeah. a, a beautiful thing that needs to be preserved y'all need to get on the church like though Games on Sunday? Do some church league. Everyone's terrible. No one ever does well at games. Great for your ego. <laughs> and it's great for your ego. I sometimes will yell out losing builds character at games. <laughs> and which Josh tells me not to do, but I do anyway. And you know, it's I don't know, it's just so sweet and low key. That's interesting. I don't They're think not they are not going to get no scholarship, Dave. I know. That's, I want to tell shout, to shout that at my peers. I was like, I'm pretty sure none of these kids are going to be playing in the major leagues Church or in the league. NBA. That, that, All day, every day. I preached this past weekend about John the Baptist in jail saying, are you the one who yes. comes we wait for another? Yes. It's like such, it's a question that's filled with so much disappointment. Mm. It's basically like, what the hell has happened here? Yes. I, 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 I'm disappointed. And I think that uh, school sports maybe are a wonderful way to, to have a school, be schooled in disappointment um, yes. as, a, as a child. And maybe that's important since we tend not to be disappointed uh, until we're older. But can, um, I, can I make a quick church shout out? Can I do that? Of course. Do it. So this weekend, I was with my cousin um, in the suburbs of Chicago, and she they don't usually go to church, but they're doing that thing that you know a lot of people are doing where they try to find a church, and they've it's been a lot of misses. And so she said, would you, you know, would you go to church with me? Could you help me find a church? And so I reached out to some people I knew and said, we just want a normal church, right? Like, mm. I'm not really, you know, it doesn't have to hit all the marks. Just give me a normal church. So they sent us to Church of the Holy Nativity in Clarendon Hills, Illinois. So it's in the suburbs of Chicago. It was fabulous. Aww. The deacon preached such a gospel-filled sermon talked about us being in our own prisons mm. right mm. and and jesus being the freedom to get out of them you know a home, like a beautiful choir but definitely like no paid singers which i'm as this is very familiar to my childhood i just loved old people young people babies anyway i just want to give a shout out that the it, the whole experience was lovely so wow there's yeah, God. and my cousin felt so welcomed. And, you know, you take people to church and you kind of hold your breath. Like, oh, God, I oh, hope this yeah. goes well. Just and, a little bit, Sarah. I and mean, most of the time, it does not go well. And it right. went so well. So, anyway, just a little shout out. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's great. It was wonderful. Clarendon Hills. I like it. Mm -hmm. Church um, of the Holy Nativity. Well, you know, I, I did, uh, in prepping for this episode, I was thinking about, you know, we haven't really done year-end lists formally on Mockingbird for a bit, but um, do you guys have anything, I, I, one thing in particular you would recommend or you would highlight that you've consumed or that's been helpful to you personally either or vocationally or um, what would it be? Uh, RJ, it looks like you've got something you're, you're raring to share. I do. I'm probably the only listener of this podcast who has not already watched this and I avoided it for a long time because I generally loathe contemporary, overtly Christian media. But finally, enough people said something to me that I started watching it, and it and I it has been pretty amazing. Is are you about to say the chosen? I'm about to say the chosen. I'm sorry, <laughs> I am. I'm sorry. No, all right. I, it's it's just. I mean, it's not it's not perfect, but it's pretty darn good. Like mm. there's a few little little cheesy, cringy moments, but. 
how faithful it is to the gospels, the way that it portrays a Jesus that I'd actually want to hang out with. And you, you're like, okay, maybe I can understand why people would follow this person and the mm. healing that people experience, the forgiveness that people experience. Um, and it's it's creative. And I I, um, I don't want to say, I've, I've really enjoyed it. And I'm uh, like a few episodes into season two, which production value wise is like a quantum leap over season one because the whole thing is crowdfunded. Um, I just, I mentioned in my sermon this Sunday and it's, uh, it's, have you guys, you guys watched it? Yes. No. Have you avoided also, it also like me? No, I haven't I avoided it. it. I've just been, been told by a lot of people that I should watch it. So it's I've got no, like, nothing against it. I've never it. heard of it. Are you serious? Yeah. You guys so, run in different circles. Well, but, uh, I mean, not that it's been everywhere. It's just, I had one or two of my parishioners say something to me about it recently and how personally helpful it had been to them and portrayed Jesus in a way that was, and I was like, okay, and we're not a super like Christian-y congregation by any, yeah. by any chance, by any, you know, I, But I, like, I thought you were going to say White Lotus, so. No, no, not White Lotus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've not watched White Lotus yet. I'm looking forward to that. Um, it's pretty great. But yeah, it's really I good. I can't handle it. It's too, too dark. It's unremitting. I find it too, 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 too. Sad. And the chosen is not. What, so Sarah? What about what about you? White this Lotus. This feels like so appropriate that he's got like a uh, like a Christian, you know. Thing I know. I feel a little bad. about it. I do want to say. I do want to say this person I'm recommending is is actually Christian, and you see it a little bit in her work, but. As much as we, I feel like for a couple of episodes have been like, oh, like therapy and like online therapist. I do want to just give a shout out to a woman named Kobe Campbell, who um, is a psychotherapist and she has an Instagram. Uh, her Instagram tag is just Cody Campbell, Kobe Campbell underscore. Um, she's fabulous. Her work about childhood healing, trauma, um, sort of thinking through the holidays and interacting with family is is so uh, well thought out and feels it's the kind of help that feels like an undercurrent of grace that I think sometimes we lack in sort of secular therapy world. And also I found out randomly once when I posted on her and she's, you know, quite successful, but I, I posted something on, on one of her videos and she listens to our podcast mm. so um i know so there's some simpatico there that i really love but anyway if you're looking for for a really i, I just have doesn't found she have stuff a, very a book, helpful a book coming year. out sarah doesn't she yeah so kobe campbell has a book coming out in april of 2023 called why am i like this how <laughs> to break cycles heal from trauma and restore your faith that's um, and I, it's going to be excellent. Wow, so cool! I mean, Sarah, after after you told me about that, like I, I did a did a dive into it, and I just mm-hmm. I, I just second I second that emotion. It's beautiful work. <laughs> very yeah. very cool yeah. uh, stuff, especially you know it's funny. We de- I've definitely gotten some feedback about our comments on therapy. Yeah, <laughs> and <laughs> thank I've, you for I, not sharing them with us. I've re- regret. Uh, it's just sort of yeah. But then I came across yet another article that's like trying to parse this difference, but I, I'm, yeah. anyway, I just want to it's say it's in the again, ether. That's why I'm, the, I'm so thr- thrilled you're, we're, we're highlighting that, that book yeah. and that work. Um, for me, two things, I was blown away. We've talked about the, uh, the, the podcast heavyweight before. Yes. And there was an episode that my wife told me to listen to on one of these, you know, trips to North Carolina recently. And it's episode number 44 and it's, it's actually called Sarah, but not with an H. Uh-huh. And it's about a young woman who receives a letter uh, from a, another woman with the exact same name as her, claiming to be her childhood best friend. Mm. 
And it's about them delving into what was going on. And it, Sarah, I mean, it touches on a very traumatic childhood and it touches huh. on friendship. But ultimately, the, the, I, had, I was crying like a baby at the end of it. And it's, it's the hand of God is all over this in the most miraculous and cool way. And I just want to recommend that to people. The other thing that sustained me this year, I think the best thing I've read in a long time is Faith, Hope, and Carnage by Nick Cave and Sean O'Hagan, especially if you can get the audiobook version of it um, where they read their their things. I, I'm not sure, I don't feel like we totally did it justice when I tried talking about it on here, but it is a work that's tremendously bu- buoying and um, mm. challenging, and but fascinating and comforting. And the, the, the key, the key that it's written in is the key that I, uh, speaks to me. So, um, those are some great recommendations. You know, uh, RJ, you do not have to apologize for liking The Chosen. I think that I that's, feel uh, like it's it's bizarre because I've just I, so much of contemporary Christian media is so bad. Um, but yeah. it was it was it's shockingly good. And I'll say, Heavyweight is amazing. Jonathan Goldstein is incredible. He's a he's a guy. I wonder if ever would come speak at a conference because he uh, has such insight. I feel like in wisdom, compassion, yeah, I mean, and, and a lot of his his episode, a lot of the episodes of that show brush up against. God in a powerful way, even though I'm pretty sure he's not a Christian. <laughs> no, but he, it's, he's very interested in grace, that's for sure. Yes, no question. Um, who's well, not? Who's not? That's, <laughs> I like that, sir. Well, um, let's get into it before, before we... Uh, yeah, let's get into it. The first thing, I thought it was very funny, by the way, you guys, just thinking about our year on this podcast, is that uh, Oxford, uh, the dictionary company's word of the year, was goblin mode. I saw that. Which is, uh, I, I mentioned that in a crowd of people, and no one knew what, had never heard that word. So I think it felt like it was uh, engineered for headlines. But Merriam-Webster's uh, word of the year was gaslighting. Yeah. Gaslighting. I think that's actually much more accurate. This is what NPR was reporting about it. They said, uh, lookups for the word on merriamwebster.com increased by 1,740% in 2022 over the Half year of before. those were me because I have to look it up every time I hear it because I still don't quite understand it. Well, here we go. Let's try to explain it. There wasn't a single event that drove significant spikes in the curiosity as it usually goes with the chosen word of the year. No, the gaslighting was pervasive. It was looked up frequently every single day of the year, said Peter Sokolowski, uh, Merriam-Webster's editor-at-large. Now, the top definition for gaslighting is the psychological manipulation of a person, usually over an extended period of time, that, quote, causes the victim to question the validity of their own thoughts, perception of reality, or memories, and typically leads to confusion, loss of confidence, and self-esteem, uncertainty of one's emotional or mental stability, and a dependency on the perpetrator. Right, okay, yep. The word was brought to life more than 80 years ago with uh, by in a play written in 1938 by Patrick Hamilton entitled Gaslight. It's about a, uh, the... One woman named Paula and marries a man named Gregory, and they—it's a sort of a whirlwind romance. And she complains about the constant dimming of their London townhouse's gaslights. What? Yeah, and is he? She? He basically tries to convince her that it's a figment of her troubled mind, and it's not. So that makes that makes sense. She's talking. I'm obsessed. I love this. <laughs> I thought you might. Yes. So she thinks it's like, is it warm in here? Or is it the, 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 yes. the lights just go dim, and he's been doing it, and he's trying to make her convince her that she's crazy. She's crazy. 
But, uh, you know, I was reading on Forbes was talking about it, too. They said an example of gaslighting is when the head of a department bullies and harasses you at work while at the same time tries to make it seem like you are the person who's being difficult. Another example is when a colleague ousts you out of a role by convincing everyone that you've somehow been trying to oust him or her. Gaslighting can occur in healthcare settings, too, when a healthcare professional convinces a patient that he or she does or doesn't have an illness when the opposite is true. The patient may start to believe that he or she is quote-unquote crazy. Then there's the gaslighting that occurs in personal relationships when, for example, one person endeavors to keep the other disoriented and, in turn, under control. Gaslighting. Now, Sarah, you said that was fascinating. Why, do you th- why would you say it's fascinating? I mean, for me, that feels like such a an obvious and clear, like, you know, like it makes sense now, right? Like I'm getting the visual of it. Right. Um, I think it's a bit overused right now. And so <laughs> I get confused. Like, honestly, people be like, and that was gaslighting. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I got to go. Wait, that was like, I got to go back to the definition. Um, yeah. I mean, I think... You know, 80% of parenting is gaslighting. I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say, isn't it a little bit uh, that's the case sort of with, with parenting is kind of foisting your version of reality onto your children? Even uh, You know who it makes me think of? Please direct all your hate Preaching is gaslighting. Preaching is... <laughs> it makes me think of Taylor Swift um, because I know... And all... Please, I, please, Lord, don't let my college girls listen to this uh, podcast because they all love her. But like she, I don't know. There's always like this. The it's fascinating to me that she dates people and then all always seems to write angry songs about them afterwards. Mm-hmm. And it just feels very like who's who's in charge, who's the victim, who's I don't know. I just it's maybe that. Please don't come at me, Swifties. <laughs> hey, I'm a Swifty. I, I love. I've been loving the new record, but I I know what you're saying because yes. what it, what it you I think the reason it's you, overused. Dave, you, Dave. We're not a bridesmaid <laughs> with a bunch of women in their twenties who listen to Taylor Swift all day long while they got ready. That oh was gosh. the day I stopped listening to Taylor Swift. Okay, keep going. <laughs> that was the day I wanted nothing to do with any yeah, of this ever exactly. again. Um. Well, I just think as human beings, part of it is we all have our own version of reality that we're trying to, again, like, uh, you know, project onto other people yeah. and get them to buy into. I think that that's sort of, there. there's something default about the, I mean, almost like a low anthropology type of view of everyone's got their presuppositions and their blind spots and they're trying to sort of convince other people people that my way of looking at reality is true. The the gaslighting thing is when there's something sort of nefarious about it and you're intentionally trying to convince this person that this thing that doesn't feel right to them actually does feel right. It's their problem, you know? Like, uh, I think... Um, None of us live with this much clarity. That's yeah. what drives me crazy. Do you know what I mean? Like, we don't have this much clarity about our intentions. We don't have this much clarity about other people's intentions. Like, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think it's a great word. I think there's definitely places like it's useful, but it's it is like used a lot right now. Well, certainly like filter bubbles online are a version of gaslighting where you're only ever exposed to things that are kind of uh, confirming your own narrative or biases. But again, I don't know how that's almost algorithmic. RJ, what are you what are you thinking? I see you having a reaction here. I think it can be a thing. I think if you have a relationship, uh, either a marital relationship or an employment relationship, some sort of power relationship with someone who is a diagnosable narcissist or a compulsive liar, 
um, of which there are, I hate to say, more than we might like to think there are, then I've known people who have been in relationships where someone was so pathologically committed to their version of events and so convinced of their own rightness that, you know, if you're married to, if you are married to a diagnosable narcissist, you will end up feeling a little crazy because they're so completely convinced and bought into their own version of reality. So I want to say, first of all, I do think it's a real thing that happens to people. Mm. I also want to say, I think it's a very easy term to throw around um, when someone just doesn't agree with you, <laughs> you know, or if you don't agree with them, or if they're trying to tell you that you were wrong about something, um, or that you've had a miscommunication. You know, sometimes people just miscommunicate. Sometimes there's just a breakdown. Sometimes um, the way that something is received is not the way it was intended. So I think you got to be careful when you throw that word around because it's a heavy word and it totally comes out of the political situation of the last couple of years, right? Where no one is no one is sure what's real. You know, people are trying to create their own reality. Truth doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. Um, that's where it comes out of. But I, you got to be careful about throwing it around in interpersonal relationships because mm. I think it can be very damaging. There's just no nuance anymore. And nuance is yeah. like the most beautiful thing we have in relationships and trust and like, and like thinking that people have good intentions and like, we just, we just don't have that anymore. We've lost so much. Or of just it, thinking you know? that everyone always has evil intentions, which is also right. not true, which right. is also not true. Right. Sometimes, right. sometimes the way something is said or the ways it's intended is not the way it's received. Yeah. You know, and, and it, that just happens sometimes because people are deep wells of hurt and they have buttons. Oh they have yes. buttons that get pushed even when you don't mean to push them. Yes. Yeah. You know, the yes. transference. It's true. You know, yeah. yeah. I, I do. Th I think about, though, uh, I'm just thinking of like two or three different people I know in my church. And these are all three of our women who were in marriages in a very, con I guess you'd call just a conservative Christian context where they were mm -hmm. told over the course of years by pastors that everything that was going on in the relationship was basically a function of their own sin or... And again, I don't think those pastors were necessarily intentionally gaslighting them, but I think that the ultimate truth was that they were gaslit. I think yeah. that they, when they get out of that, they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't have a right to my own experience of this forever. And uh, I was being I was being made to feel like I was crazy. And and you do see a kind of a liberation and a relief that comes from that. And I, I think that, that it is, has been a helpful term in, term in those kind of abusive, coercive situations. Yes. That I was mean, a big I, part of Mars is, Hill, the rise and fall of Mars like, Hill. Yeah. I, I take issue with these words that we start to throw around right now. I mean, I guess this is true in, in any cultural moment, but like, especially because of the internet and social media, like a word kind of latches on and first I hear my college students use it and then I use it and then my middle schooler uses it. Like it's a cycle. And that's abusive. It's just abusive. We don't abusive. have to call like it what you're describing is abusive. Yeah. Like yeah. I don't want to give it some fun, cool word that was the word of the year. You know, it's just, so I think that's and anything that's like confusing to me. I don't like to use it because it's not helpful. You know, like that's manipulation that I don't know. It's, and I'm pro it's probably sound like an, an old lady and that's fine. But, you know, I'm just like, these newfangled words, just say what it is. It's kind of where I'm coming. Well, from. no, it is a way to put yourself in a, in a certain category. Um, when people who use that word a lot are, are all reading the same things, I think. And uh, you can feel, I think you can feel gaslit in, in all sorts of different 
ways. But I, 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 that's a, I, that's a really fair point, Sarah. Because like, well, let's call it what it is. It's it's actually abusive, not, yeah. um, and and you know this this idea that there was some nefarious plot to convince you of other realities is there was also just someone you know evil and and sin and, and all these other things right, that we can we can you right. we can talk about without using yeah. a, a a term that makes it that, that shuts down the discussion probably yeah. too yes um well here's here's a, something the kind of the opposite of gaslighting this is the next piece is from the stephanie murray in the atlantic about should friends offer honesty or unconditional support is it appropriate to tell a friend when you think they're making a bad decision? Or is a friend's role to offer steadfast and unconditional support and leave the unsolicited advice to parents, spouses, or siblings? One view, like that of philosopher Alistair McIntyre, uh, says that the willingness to be scrupulously truthful in such moments is the core of friendship. All human beings have blind spots, and none of us is immune to poor decision-making. A true friend, there in this account, is one who cares enough about our welfare to help liberate us from those illusions. Another view, which is sort of actually the one espoused by Friedrich Nietzsche, holds that it is precisely our willingness to keep our mouths shut in the face of a friend's error that allows any of our friendships to survive. Um, now, she goes on to say, social psychology research underscores the tension between these perspectives, because honesty is something people both expect and appreciate from close friends. Ask what makes for intimacy in a friendship. People say things like, if I'm making a mistake, my friend will let me know. If I need advice, my friend will give it, according to a study conducted by Beverly Fair at the University of Winnipeg. But truthfulness isn't all that, isn't all that people expect from their friends. It doesn't always square with friendship's other duties. Because the subjects of that study also emphasize the importance of statements like, no matter who I am or what I do, my friend will accept me. People want honesty from their friends, but also unconditional support and validation. And however important people proclaim honesty to be, research suggests that most of us are very reluctant to confront our friends when issues arise. As far as the preservation of the relationship is concerned, the risks of calling a friend out are high. The risks of keeping quiet are low. I just... You know, this makes me think of something RJ said about marriage a while back, which was like how a really healthy way to function in marriage is to be curious. And I kind of feel that's true in a lot of relationships. I feel like being curious if you're concerned about something for a friend, because I also feel like I don't know what's best for them. Like this feels a little bit like when we try to make our spouse be the therapist and the whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like all the things that they like, they can only be a person. Mm. I think it's to expect. I mean, I love friendship because I love companionship, not because I'm, it's 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 weird to me that we would feel like we needed to be. I mean, maybe maybe this word is too harsh, but corrective in friendships like i don't know what's good for you i don't know yeah i i hear that i mean this is what the the, the christian idea of speaking the truth in love comes uh, rears its head here like i have a friend that's in a really troubled marriage and i've really wanted to be like you gotta go you gotta get out this is not good it's not good for anybody not good for you not good for the kids and like that's not gonna fix it. She's just not gonna be friends with me anymore. Yeah, you know what I mean. That's exactly so. the the example actually that this uh, the author cites is a, yeah. a a woman who does that with a, a female friend, and the woman's walls just go up, and she cuts her out of her life. And then if she does leave and she needs me, I don't know if she'll reach out. And so like I'm kind of just want to be there because you I don't, don't want you don't want the I told you so sort of. No, yeah, no one yeah. wants that. 
No. It's very difficult to know what to do. I, I mean, I always feel like you kind of, it's less of a considered decision than people think. Like sometimes you just say stuff because you can't not say it. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I always, I mean, my always sense is like, when it, when in doubt, keep your mouth shut. I mean, that's like the, yeah. the let get, get, let God be the one to sort of engineer that scenario. <laughs> Better remain silent and be thought a fool than open your mouth and remove all doubt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, I, RJ? I remember a friend of mine, I don't know, who can't remember who it was, but someone who was in recovery, you know, sort of in a 12-step program and, and wise, saying that in, I think it was AA, the need to give someone else advice was always seen as a sign of a lack of faith. Because if you really believed that God is in charge, then you wouldn't feel the need to tell someone else what to do. Yeah. You know, um, I think that, I think there's wisdom to that. Um, I also like, you know, to get a little biblical because that's my thing on this podcast. That's, your That's my thing. The chosen, um, the Bible. The cho- exactly as it says. Actually, I did. I did. I didn't bring up the chosen over the last article. I wanted to, but I kept my mouth shut so I wouldn't be thought a fool. Um, it reminds me that you know, in the Garden of Eden, the temptation of the serpent is eat this fruit, and your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. That's what we, we want to know: what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. But to me, part of having faith is is giving up on that a little bit. Like if the cross is good, then we don't actually know what's good. You know, if suffering ends up being good, then we don't actually know what's good. I mean, Luther in the Heidelberg Disputation says a theologian of glory calls, you know, evil good and good evil, gets it, gets it upside down, gets it backwards. And he says something about the theologian of the cross being able to see, calls a thing what it is. But I'm still not very confident often of my ability to call a thing what it is. Um, so sometimes, every so often, it's clear. But like you said, Sarah, even when it does, is clear, just saying it often is not the most helpful thing. And it may just alienate you from, um, from the person that is suffering or acting incorrectly or something. So I, I have a few, I feel no. like I've got a few friends in my life that I would receive. Like if one of you came to me and said, RJ, you're really blowing this, I would think pretty deeply about that. Hmm. Well, you I'm, know, glad, I'm glad you said that, RJ, because Sarah and I have been <laughs> exactly. talking. Exactly. <laughs> Sarah's been talking to Jamie about her marriage. And <laughs> um, I mean, what's funny to me from the article is like the, the thing was like, you know, should you not do it? Should you just let spouses yeah, and I know. parents? I was like, well, that's also a bad idea. <laughs> well, is your is your goal in a, is the idea in a friendship to straighten other people out, or is it to simply walk right. with them through just to be uh, with them have, and then to really not know? I mean, yeah, it, I'll just say this: I've seen some some situations, especially involving romantic partners, where I I look back and I think, gosh, should I have said something? Because I certainly yeah. felt so at the time, but yeah. um. And I could blame myself and I could say, but I, I know for a fact they wouldn't have, my own experience is that when people have done that with me, I've never listened. And no. I've, I've just, it's just been another, it's almost made me want to run in the opposite direction. I mean, this is how the law works. And I just don't think unsolicited advice is ever received as anything but judgment, even if it's meant from a place of, of love. It might, it, it matters not how it's intended, but how it's received and how the way that it's received in this, these situations is um is not i think you can pray for your friend i think you can 
you know, plant seeds. And again, if you're in a situation where you just can't say something, you're going to say something whether you should or not. So it's going to happen. And uh, certainly, but isn't it funny that like usually when you, when you get some sort of corrective that really gets through to you, it comes from someone that you barely know. I mean, it's like the the people that know us best, I, I always find it comes from out of the clear blue sky. Someone says, "Well, gosh, I, I I spent you know two hours with you guys. I I don't know how you guys do it. Like that's that's a really tough relationship." And then you walk away and you're like, "Well, if my mom had said that, I wouldn't have heard it at all. If my brother had said that, forget about it, because I, I would have just thought about how how they're doing wrong or all this sort of right. thing." This is so like of our era to me. This question, right? Because friendships have never been about correcting and and like calling each other out improving each other improving each other yeah and it just feels it's like god no wonder democrats can't be friends with republicans and vice versa no wonder Mm. you know like what i mean this is what friendship is about if you're not like converting what a thing of a bygone era you know like because we can't if we're if we're having for having to it also means like we're fundamentally like asking our friends agree with us. Yeah. You know, you need to change and affirm me the way they're parenting or correcting who they're married to or correcting what they do for a living. Like you're essentially saying like you have to agree with me and I get to say what's agreeable in your life. Like, no, thank you. Yeah. That's, I think that's, and you know, she hinted at that the whole idea of friendship is a fundamentally gracious thing. It's unnecessary. Oh, it, it's totally. It's about yes. giving. These are people that you don't, yes. they, they're not, unlike family, you're not really, you don't, you don't, you know, you sort of, you don't have you to, you don't have to be in touch with these yeah. people. And uh, it's all sort of a gracious type of situation. And I, I anyway, I, I think you're right. Cause they, they quote a couple people who talk about this being sort of a culture of passivity. And I'm just thinking, I think we could use a little more passivity when it I comes to this sort of passivity. thing and yes. um, praying for our friends and, and listening to them when they're mm-hmm. in, in trouble, but maybe not um, the calling people out, especially one's friends. I just, it's this massive mistake we make as a culture that it does anything other than make you feel a little better about yourself. It, it really, that's all it genuinely, that's, that's it. it. You're not going to change anybody. It doesn't work. And it's, it's yeah. not received as, as, it's like we all have, you know, a, a screwdriver and uh, we think that it's meant to hammer things. I mean, it really, it, it, it's never going to do that because it's not how, it, anyway. Um, I love your screwdriver metaphor for friendship. It's not weird at all. Totally. I'm going to delete. Dave's <laughs> office. Guys, make me self-conscious. My friends here. Correcting me. Unsolicited that. advice from Sarah Condon. <laughs> Anything In else? In the name of love. Anything. Well, let's go move on to the next thing then. This is uh, sort of a more slightly more seasonal thing by Kate Murphy in the New York Times, unpacking the psychology of gift giving. When it comes to gift giving, she writes, context is everything. Whether a present is a home run or an epic fail depends less on cost, design, style, presentation, or practicality, and more on the giver's ability to listen, observe, and empathize, and perhaps do a little sleuthing. Good gifts such as the old window frame a college student's first serious boyfriend gave her with a photograph of her new favorite view mounted inside show that you have paid attention. Bad gifts makes you wonder if the giver knows you at all, like the floral china teapot given by a mother-in-law to a daughter-in-law whose tastes ran mid-century modern and who had, she thought, made it clear that she preferred brewing tea in a mug. Even worse are gifts that imply criticism, such as a flat iron given by another mother-in-law to a daughter-in-law who always wore her hair curly. 
Dr. Julian Givey, a professor at West Virginia University, said people tend to fall into the trap of not fully putting the recipient first. Indeed, his research indicates that people often give gifts that reflect their own desires and motivations rather than considering the preferences of the recipient. Moreover, gift givers tend to focus more on the ta-da moment when the chocolate fountain emerges from the avalanche of packing peanuts rather than on whether the recipient actually wants, will use, or even has space for the thing. This doesn't necessarily mean the gift giver is a narcissist or even terribly inconsiderate. It's just that the person isn't great at what is known in psychology as perspective taking. People tend to have trouble with that, Dr. Givey said. Giving a gift, especially one you want to make a statement, can be a vulnerable experience. This is why one psychologist said, that's why some people get so stressed out about giving gifts, because it feels too exposing to express their emotions and like they won't do it right. People can also have a hard time accepting gifts, particularly if they have an avoidant attachment style or fear intimacy. They might subconsciously resent being known in that way or feel unworthy or even envious because they are not as thoughtful. A thoughtful and generous gift can stir up all kinds of conscious and unconscious fears, longings, and desires. No wonder some gift givers tend to err on the side of caution and just buy something generic like a gift card rather than run the risk of going personal and getting it wrong. Sarah, how's, how's the gift shopping going so far for you? Uh, it's good. I was thinking, I've, I've actually been thinking about this Christmas a lot, and I wrote about it years ago. Um, before Annie was born, Neil was a toddler, and I was working at the hospital, and I was putting these really long weeks, and I had no time to shop, and I just went on these websites and bought, like, the cheapest little kid goofy things with no real attentiveness to like what shows Neil was watching or, you know, anything. And then we got him one of those, um, Santa actually got him one of those, uh, bikes that, you know, doesn't have the pedals on it. Mm -hmm. And all I remember about that Christmas morning was he just sort of like, I mean, he was, he was excited. He's looking at opening presents, but it was like everyone he'd open and kind of be like, huh? And then, like, the, you know, the bike gets rolled out, and he's just like, Santa forgot the pedals. <laughs> and, you know, because that was its own agenda, right? Like, please learn how to ride a bike so we don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it just makes me kind of, like, it, it makes me sad to think about, although he, he doesn't remember that Christmas, I'm sure. And I try to be more intentional now and paying attention to what they are really into or excited about and that does take more work but it's you know it's really sweet like it's a for me I I totally understand this concept of gifts as being known and loved you know when I lost my mom especially and my dad too because he gave such funny gifts um like like the year before he died he gave us um a meatloaf pan um a wooden spoon specifically that he thought was excellent for making meatloaf and his favorite meatloaf recipe with a Photoshop picture of meatloaf, the singer who is no longer with us on it. I mean, really detailed, precious, you know? And I remember when my mom died, I was like, I'm never going to get a gift that makes me feel that way again. And I haven't, Mm. you know, and I miss that. So I, I, I mean, there's something about gifts where you really say known and love to people that are riskier and they take more time, but there's, there's, it's so sweet to me. 
which is not to make anyone feel anxious if they haven't gotten people things like that. Because I feel like by the time this comes out, like, especially women are going to be hyperventilating. <laughs> no, it, but that's what they're sort of the dynamic they describe. It's like, oh, no, the, the whole gift giving thing turns into a psychodrama of like, I'm not thoughtful enough. Like if I were actually, yeah. th- it becomes a barometer of how much you actually care. Or, um, I don't know. RJ, I, I don't get the sense you're a very good gift giver. I'm not. Yeah, I had, I'm not. I'm, <laughs> I'm just. Not. I wasn't kidding. I think I think you said that before. I'm so stressed out about it. Yeah, I just. Oh, I, I I I procrastinate. I put it off because I'm like, what am I gonna get? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um. I don't just say. I don't like giving gifts. I. It's hard to think about, and I feel like it's gonna be a fail. And I don't know. It's not my love language. You know, word, it's hard. Words it's of really affirmation hard. are my love language. Like, I will encourage the hell out of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. And tell you I love you and uh, throw my arms around you. But the gift giving thing, man, I struggle. That's why it's one, it's something that makes Christmas really hard. Really well, hard. and it's hard anyway because there's so many things going on. And then it's like, I, I mean, and I don't know the dynamics in your family, but, but, you know, in most families, the, in, most families, the male is in charge of buying something for his spouse. Yes. Uh, and then she does everything else. And that does sound like, oh my gosh, so much easier on him. And it is, except like the stakes are much higher, I think. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because I'm out here like hustling. You know what I mean? Making lists. You got a robe. Organizing. Sarah got another robe like, this year. Another. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Here's your robe, Here's your mom. Robe. Here's your robe, mom. <laughs> that Saturday Night so. Live thing is so funny. Yeah, I, I, I like. I have. I, I love the process of buying people gifts. I gotta say, you're an Enneagram three, and I'm always sort of like. Dis- I'm, I'm oftentimes, you know, you sort of then like project that on other people, and you get kind of disappointed that they're not. They don't give you the same kind of thoughtful gifts. Yes, this is. And yeah, so then you same. get to feel like a victim, is, just like you've yes. possibly like you've been gaslit. Um, yes. <laughs> by they actually, um, but someone sent uh, uh, one of our listeners sent me a low anthropology mug that is actually Santa's uh, face, and it says, "You're all naughty." Romans three ten through twelve. <laughs> that was funny. And then another listener sent me a Marty McFly uh, battle of the bands uh, with a disappearing hand, like. Uh, action figure. So I feel known and loved, and that's. Uh, I, I want to just say thank you to, to Eve Nash and to Taylor Foran for giving such thoughtful oh, Taylor gifts. Um, no, I, I I always find that the, uh, the what, what's interesting is is the ability. To, uh, what I've noticed in, in life is that people have sometimes have a very hard time receiving gifts, and like it is when we talk about it being more blessed to give than to receive, like it's sometimes, and sometimes it's a lot easier to give than to receive. And, um, it's almost like forgiveness. That's the way it it works. Like I'm, I'm good at forgiving other people, but terrible at forgiving myself. Like I'm, I have a hard time sometimes receiving. And this is, I think as it relates to God's grace, you know, it's, it's, it can be such a exposing and kind of undoing thing. Like you don't feel worthy to receive something or, well, it also points to need, right? None of us want to be needy. So yeah. there's something about gifts that point to need. I mean, I definitely have had people in my life who have tried to get me very specific to me things since mom died. And, you know, it's it's like sometimes the specificity reminds me of why they're doing it. You know, yeah. like 
Gifts are so loaded and complicated. I mean, last Christmas, Josh got me, he always gets me a bunch of books every year and which feels so lavish and unnecessary because we have like so many books already and libraries exist. Mm -hmm. But like, I love that he goes into a bookstore and gets me so many books. And last year I was just like, I got so many books and I already have my dead parents books. And, you know, and really it was just like, I want my parents. Yeah. Right, but it was like poor guy. I mean, my my word. Like, this is yet another reason why Halloween is better than Christmas, probably. A hundred percent. Why Easter? Yeah. Um, it, this I will is, say too. This is maybe a little bit too personal, but I'm sure I'm not the only guy out there who feels like this. I feel like I'm not very good at taking care of myself, or even knowing what I want. And there's somehow it's t- it's tied up in there a little bit. It's like I I have a tough time even taking care of myself or thinking about what I like to do or what I would want. And then it becomes very stressful to think about what other people want. I, I don't know. It just, and it feels, I don't know. It feels inefficient or something like that. That's I don't know. That's so I'm, interesting. I'm Cause res- men are so, I mean, I love that you're saying that cause men are so notoriously hard to shop for and you are. And so that's such an interesting, like I'd never thought about that, that like you're so bad at knowing what you need. Yeah. I think that's probably true by the way. And it goes back to the last episode. We're just, I'm, it's stressful. I'm tired all the time. I don't really want to think about it. I have a huge fear of disappointing people, a huge fear of them not feeling loved, not taking care of, but I also don't really know even how to take care of myself. I don't know. Well, these are the minefields we step into at Christmas. And I think this is probably why yes. it's good news. That, Merry Christmas. <laughs> the, the reason for the season is, is, a, is a gift that keeps on giving. Um, Said said Anxiety. said the youth minister. Oh, <laughs> well, it, fe- it feels like the moment in the all-time great Christmas special, the 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 Charlie Brown moment. Where he throws his head up on the stage, and everything has failed. He's bought the wrong tree. He can't yeah. direct the play, and he says, "Won't yeah. anyone tell me what the true meaning of Christmas is?" Yeah, and then little. Blanket holding Linus comes out on the stage, and suddenly yeah. everything is okay, and we all weep, and it's like, oh yeah. But I'm not, I'm not quite at that moment of total desperation yet, but okay. I'm almost there. Good to know. You're on track. Well, it, yeah. maybe, maybe that ties into this next one, which is from the BBC on the upsides of feeling small by Richard Fisher. Begins by quoting an essayist who wrote this in 1712 that our imagination loves to be filled with an object or to grasp at anything that is too big for its capacity. We are flung into a pleasing astonishment at such unbounded views and feel a delightful stillness and amazement in the soul at the apprehension of them. The, the essay is interested in drawing the distinction between beauty and the sublime. A tended garden uh, has beauty, but the sublime uh, provides something more complex, an enriching connection between the intellect and objects of vast scale or dynamic power. Crucially, something sublime like an enormous mountainscape or something like that, or like the Hubble telescope, brings a touch of discomfort, humility, or even pain. When a mountain, storm cloud, or waterfall diminished the self, it was a reminder of one's own vulnerability and finite existence, but felt safely at a distance. A sweet shudder, as one German philosopher put it. Now, they talk about how the sublime is always uh, interconnected with feelings of awe. Um, that awe is if the feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends your current understanding of the world. Various studies have shown that experiencing awe can reduce stress, discourage rumination, and enhance well-being. It also fosters greater attention to detail, boosts memory, and encourages critical thinking. Then there are the pro-social benefits. People in awe are more likely to show generosity, become less individualist, and emphasize a greater sense of connection to others and the world. And awe, of course, is deeply connected with the power of wonder, 
when approaching the unknown, the psychologist Frank Kyle uh, d- talks about the power of wonder when which he describes as a more active, engaged sense of awe. Wonder is the engine that drives innovation and inquiry, the accidental impetus behind humanity's greatest achievements. It implores us to ask how, what, where, when, what if. It is one of the most powerful motivations we have as humans, and no one can take it away from us. If, as Richard Fisher writes, we are to navigate the enormous challenges of the coming decades without falling into the twin traps of dismissive hubris or paralyzing dread, then the lenses of sublimity, awe, and wonder may be necessary. I mean, when we talk about giving gifts, I always think about wanting to go on trips and experience things like the sublime uh, in, in nature. I, I have a, a friend that is trying to go on this mass mammoth canoe trip, and one of the reasons I'm, I want to do it is because he, he posts such beautiful pictures of this sort of grandeur. Of course, when, you, when you're viewing on a tiny screen, grandeur, it's, it's, it cannot be filtered into that. And I, um, I like... Uh, uh, this experience of awe and wonder also is connected to me in the sense of the this this book I've been speaking about, low anthropology, and that sort of a, a view of human beings that expects less of them, or, or sort of a more honest, or a sobering approach to human nature, actually increases awe and wonder at all the amazing things that are put before you, the beauty, the goodness that you, that is in evidence despite all of our uh, you know efforts to obscure it. But do you guys experience awe, wonder? Do these words connect with you? Yeah. I mean, I experience awe and wonder. It's fascinating to me. I mean, I definitely experience it when I've been to churches in England. So it's fascinating to me. The BBC is like, go outside. Because it's a little <laughs> bit like, when's the last time you were in one of those big, beautiful churches? Because I definitely feel that in those spaces as well. Mm. Um, I have to say the last time I experienced it, I was uh, it was this fr- past Friday. And I was with my cousins in Chicago and we went to the Arboretum cause they had decorated it with lights and the, ed- they kept saying like, cause it was also fabulous. And they kept saying, Oh, wait till the end, wait till the end. And at the end they had done this sort of light and sound thing on the forest that made it look like the trees were breathing. Wow. And you know, we had this whole gaggle of like very loud, like high on hot chocolate children and everyone just like froze, you know, in front of these trees. It was so astonishing. And I looked over at my um, my cousin's child, who is uh, a, a kid I would describe as one who has a lot of awe and wonder. And he was uh, conducting the trees breathing like like it, it, with his hands. And, you know, I, I I mean, I think awe and wonder is, is often what saves us from the um, – What's the what's the beautiful phrase and it's a wonderful life where Clarence is is talking to God and he says like well is he sick and 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 God says no it's worse than that he's he's hopeless or something and you know when I think about that movie and Jimmy Stewart's character I think it is it is actually awe and wonder that saves him that pulls him out of himself in so many ways you know I think often when people are in a mental health crisis we always say like and I think about this when, you know, um, we were just talking about a, you know, a suicide of a young father before we got on, um, you know, you have these little kids and you should think about your family and everything. And I, I sometimes I think that that just makes people feel worse, but it is this like awe and wonder of pulling, pulling us out of ourselves, recognizing that, you know, our, 
our overwhelm is small by comparison, which isn't to say that it doesn't matter, but to find relief in that. Mm. Hmm. When I, we ask our, our older boys what their, you know, what their best memories of the child, their childhood was, cause they're getting older now, you know, like our oldest is 20 and our um, junior in college and our middle is uh, 18 and about to go off to college. They do always talk about the road trips that we took across the American West when we lived in Texas. And, um, we were we were doing some unpacking this weekend and pulling out these big framed photos that my wife had um, put together that we haven't hung in our home yet. And our six-year-old was like really jealous. He's like, I want to go there. When are we going there? Because we had pictures of the Grand Canyon. Us to the Grand Canyon. He wasn't born then, right? So yeah. me and my wife and our two older boys at the Grand Canyon at White Sands, New Mexico, at uh, the, the, in the Colorado Rockies. And we're like, and Jamie, my wife was like, we'll take you there. We're going to go on those trips again. We're going to go do that again. Because our older boys want to do that. They want to take Marshall and show them these amazing places. So that always is important for me. You guys, you know, know that <laughs> jumping off high places into water, <laughs> right, is a critical part of any Heyman family vacation. Yeah. Because um, I love that. But I will also say the thing which always brings me the most healing are portrayals of people, um, people who have suffered being loved seen and loved in the midst of their suffering in a way that is healing and transformational. You know, that, that's, that's really what brings tears to my eyes, you know, whether it's Buck, you know, that amazing documentary about the man, the horse whisperer who was abused as a child, or it's the Mr. Rogers documentary, or honestly, like Moments in the Chosen, or Inside, or Pixar's In and Out, you know, White Inside Lotus. Out. I've not watched White Lotus, but, I, but if that's in there, I'm in. Um, it's not, <laughs> but something, a moment when someone's humanity, which they're trying so hard to hide and they're so ashamed of is seen and loved and healed. And, and also then becomes an engine for them, them having a, a, a compassion and, a, you know, and really it's, it's moments where sort of the kingdom of God is born in someone's life, right? A space of grace, a space of that's, that's really what leaves me feeling like I can go on another day. You know, like it's not so heavy. It's not so bad. There's a God who sees me and loves me and is with me. And all the things I want to hide are actually what he wants to bring out and will, and are, are the, 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 the places where he's working, mm. you know, that they're good. They're not to be hidden. They're, they're a blessing, not a curse, something like that. So what you're saying is you experience awe and wonder in relation to grace and God. Like that's, that's what it sounds like to me. And yeah, but but portray- yes, but but when I see a powerful portrayal, power portrayal of that, it's usually gotta be, it's in, be in, in specific, some... with f- fleshed out in a in a powerful. And it's Abri- you know, so, you know, Abri act against something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I th- I yeah. think of like the, the my favorite memory of this past year was R J would love this, but it was go- being in Mexico and and going into these huge caves underground and then jumping into water and going swimming in these underground caves. It felt larger than my capacity to hold it. You know, that, that as as he talks about this, there's something sublime about it. I was with my children and we were able to, it drew us out of ourselves into the natural world. And yet, I mean, I'm not, um, the, 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 the BBC guy quotes all these, um, romantics from, you know, the 18th century and 19th century Germany and things like that. And that's what they found to be the absolute sort of connection that the substitute for God was nature. And in fact, as, as we know, if you've lived in a place that's had, uh, you know, uh, 
Hurricane. Hurricanes, Harvey, uh, you know that it's it's that's a vengeful God indeed, a capricious one. So um, I, I do want to preface that. But I also find, like, I'm chasing awe and wonder when I'm looking for new music very, very yeah, often. Totally. Yeah. Like, that's, for me, part of what is going on with that endless appetite for... Um, yeah, it's something truly, and that, in fact, that's what a lot of that book, Faith, Hope, and Carnage, is about. It's about awe and wonder and music, and it's sort of something that the the, the rational mind is just in ration, reason, and rationality, and at least in Nick Cave's view and in mine view, is is so overrated. It just is like it, it explains so little, and it's it's so uninteresting uh, to to it's to, so to dwell in the world of just like yeah. logic is just profoundly yeah. boring and and it's so antithetical as christians like it's so antithetical to the gospel yes like i was having a conversation with a relative of mine who you know grew up in the church isn't a part of the church and you know and he he's so great and so on we can have these really honest conversations and he was just like yeah i mean christianity is great like you know i'm into this whole love your neighbor thing and i was like dude i don't like my neighbors at all like what are you talking about tell you about my neighbors I was like, that's not that's not i mean i love most of my neighbors, I, you know, I don't, I feel like they're probably people in my neighborhood who listen to this podcast, but, but like, I was like, that's not the thing. Like it, not like, the thing. you know, and then he was sort of like, well, it's, you know, it's having Jesus in your heart. I get that. And I was like, some days it's great. <laughs> and then there's some days I'm like, I, you know, I feel like my heart's like all full up on like shopping lists right now. And Jesus I was like, it's, it's, it's rescue. Like it's these crazy you know, it's like everyone went after Timothy Keller this year, and I'm not really on Twitter, but I feel like he was on Twitter. It was like he's too whimsical, right? Like these versions of Christianity that have too, too much, winsome. They're too winsome. Winsome. Yeah. And it's like, that's it for me. Yes. Like, that's absolutely, that is what pulls me in to over care and, and not to over. care. Yes, yes, over and over again. Not just that I would love my neighbor, right? But that, that I would pick up a homeless woman off the street because I felt like God pushed me in that direction, you know, like not just, I mean, I just, it, for me, it just feels so that's a grand example, but do you guys know what I mean? Like it, it's like this, it, it's it, awe and wonder are, are all that it's there God is God showing me. up in, yeah. in totally unexpected, which and, I don't want to lose. I don't want to say that and lose I, for me, you know, we can, especially in our own denomination, we can get really caught up on this on wonder thing and there's nothing under it, yeah, right? Yeah. There's nothing supporting it. And, and for me, it's like that, that awe and wonder is what comes out of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's foundational. It's, it's joyful. It's, you know, life is short and em embrace those people we've been given to love. Like, it's also like, you're going to fight with them and then a miracle is going to enter in, in the middle of your conversation. Like, it's just, yeah, you know, and I, I said to him what I say to myself, what I say to everyone is like, it doesn't matter how we feel about Jesus. He's like crazy about us. Mm. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> That's what RJ said in the last episode is so, so powerful. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's so interesting. It, it feels like some people in the church and without just want, want the church to be the institutional form of the friend who's always correcting you. Like no one, <laughs> that oh. person's going to be hanging out by themselves or, yeah. or the, 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 the hippy dippy cousin just talking about awe and wonder in the corner that's dis disconnected right. from the reality of pain and suffering, which is, a, right. which, and, and uh, that's, what's so which beautiful so here. Real. You have awe and suffering, which is yoked to a specific thing, the death and resurrection of our Lord. And it's, it's kind of, it, it all kind of, you know, when you read about people, um, 
in the Christmas story, you know, coming to sort of the, the, the stars and the shepherds and the flocks and everyone kind of going to adore this child. I th- always find that to be, there's something of awe and wonder around that small light being lit in the darkness in that Rembrandt kind of way. I know it can be over-romanticized, but it, 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 it's a lot less transformative and a lot less otherworldly if everything's law, if, if there's no darkness, you know, um, right. it's, uh, that's what's powerful here. Uh, and it's the character and uniqueness of Jesus. Totally. He is just, un, he's just unlike anybody else. As in portrayed the cho- in the chosen. <laughs> just kidding. But I, I mean it. it like he's just, it's, it's crazy. Totally. It's like if that guy isn't God, then I I don't know what to say. Yeah. You know, um, he's got to be because yeah. it's he's in, you know him and it, you know when you've experienced him, but he's indescribable and it's he's anyway. Well, I don't know. we're going to end with one most, in, with one last the most thing. interesting man in the world. One last thing. Speaking of the <laughs> most interesting man in the world uh, is not actually Rob Delaney, but he is a very interesting guy. He was in the, if you've seen the TV show Catastrophe, which I think is. Really good, yes, by the way. So I, good. I love and talk about design. a person ministering out of their brokenness. Like yes. holy uh, moly. I go yeah, I I anyway, he um he's been on the talk shows recently because he just put out a book called A Heart That Works. The title is the latter half of a line from a song that says, A heart that hurts is a heart that works. And now Rob's book is about the diagnosis, treatment, and subsequent death of his third born two and a half year old son Henry. And uh, this was written up for Mockingbird by uh, Drew Colby in a very powerful piece. Uh, But this is Rob speaking to the media. He said, I started out writing the book very angry. When I first started writing, I wanted to pummel someone. I wanted it to hurt people. He said at first it was just about getting that anger out there, but then the book became more about making a way through his grief, a way for him to write his way back into humanity. Now, Drew goes on to quote Isaiah in Advent. Isaiah writes, Be strong, do not fear, here is your God. Behold, you shall find a rose in the wilderness, water in the desert, here is your God. Isaiah points not just to there, not just to a God waiting for them in Zion, but here in the desert, here is your God. When I read that this week, Drew writes, I thought of that little Henry Delaney. Really? Here is God? Here? Well, in a different interview with Stephen Colbert, Rob Delaney says that this whole experience has forced him to become more comfortable with mystery. You see deeper. You see through the veil, Rob said. Things that are much bigger and more powerful than what's happening in the day to day. You put your hand on the pulse of something more majestic and and terrifying and beautiful. Colbert then asks, what is that thing, if I may ask? Sheepishly, Rob answers, I mean, it might be love. Then, to my amazement, he said, the big problem for me is that my faith organ, or whatever, has actually been growing in the years after Henry's death. Faith growing in the wake of death? A rose in the wilderness, water in the desert, here is your God? Now, Drew writes, you'll be glad to hear that just a couple of years ago, while still writing the book, Rob and his wife conceived and bore a son. They're fourth. Rob and his wife say that their hope for this book is that even through the grief and anger that they still live with and walk through every day, they hope to show people, and I quote, how grace can still appear in even the darkest of times, end of quote. 
When I heard that, Drew writes, Rob became my Isaiah, my John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, saying it's not just a mirage, there's something here, it's real. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, light, a rose, water in the desert. This is what the scriptures promise, what the word tells us to watch and wait for, for God to be revealed in the desert. This is God with us in the least likely places, a God who chooses to be made flesh in Jesus Christ, by whose death and glorious resurrection we have been given hope that even the death of a son does not mean that God is gone. Shit, dude. <laughs> I, I was, you, you know, Delaney is um avowed atheist in other ways, and here he is talking, uh, finding himself unable to He's almost like embarrassed by the fact that his his faith organ seems to be growing in the wake of his son's death. I um, I mean, I just love that too because it's just like against his will, against all odds, against everything that he thought he believed. Like, I just I saw him have an interaction with Gail King that was so beautiful to me, especially as someone who knows grief, where he like and it was like on camera and you could tell she was not prepared for it at yeah. all. He said, when you were backstage, when we were backstage earlier, you asked me these questions about my son. Yeah. And they were so specific. And 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 he said, and, and most people, they, they, they don't ask me. Like, And he's like, I want to talk about him. Like, that was a huge gift. He like, said, you know what he says, though, Sarah? He says, that's the best thing that's happened to me in the last couple of weeks. It was like water in the desert. Yes. And, and Drew actually yeah. draws that out. I didn't read that part. Yeah. But it was uncanny. Yeah. Yeah, it was uncanny. Um, I I bought the book. Um, I haven't read it yet, but I'm. Are you ready to read that? I don't know if I can handle it. Having a isn't he a recovering alcoholic? Try. Also, wasn't he before? Didn't he go? Am I totally wrong? Was he? Did he go through it? That a, sounds really familiar. I, recovery, sure. I believe so. Okay, well, yeah. t- t- if that's not true, then take it out. But I feel like I, I I feel like that's true. And didn't I feel like maybe he said something like you know that if he had not been in recovery he would have never had the resources he needed to make it through this thing you know yeah he's been sober for he's been sober for twenty years okay so th- to me yeah. that's a like it goes back to what we were talking about before like alcoholism is bad it's yeah. evil and yet if he had not been an alcoholic who had gone through treatment he would have never been pre- like most of the time the statistics show when you lose a child. The marriage ends. Yes. It's over. The grief over. the grief destroys it. The yeah. fact that his marriage has survived and they've had another child is a miracle. It is. And it's a miracle that was only possible because he was an alcoholic. Yeah. You know, and now he mm-hmm. he he may be finding God through the death of his son, which is just the most awful thing. Yeah. But it shows the crazy way that God works. It's it's totally the last article, right? It's totally on wonder. It's totally like yes, that's that is this is all on wonder for us right now. This is this is on wonder. Yeah, it is. It's it's you know it's. I mean, I'm gosh, I probably said this a million times, and I feel like there's a bingo card in which like RJ quotes Bible passages and said says the word miracle in a Yankee accent, and I talk about my dead parents, and you're like drunk at the end, but. Um, what about me? <laughs> What's a Yankee accent? Uh, Dave doesn't get to talk much. That's a that's a space. <laughs> that's um, the miracle. That yeah, you know my parents had incredibly tragic childhoods, and they talked about them very openly with me. And there was something about that that prepared me for them to die, 
and prepared me for the loss. And, you know, when I was talking to this relative, like, I don't, you sound crazy as a Christian when you're like, well, actually the suffering is what did it, you know, like that. There's not another real, I mean, I guess maybe Buddhism. I feel like I don't know enough to make that claim, but that suffering, it's not just enlightenment though. Suffering is not enlightenment. Suffering is rescue. It's where God meets you. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I mean, it's wonderful that he's I think if people want something else to read, what I was preparing for uh, for a class at church is I reread The Haunted Man, which is Charles Dickens, one of his, his, it's his last of his five Christmas novellas. It's the only other one that's a ghost story, like Christmas Carol. And The Haunted Man is about a a very um, sorrowful man who, uh, there's a ghost that appears and gives him the ability to forget the uh, source of his sorrow. And then not only gives him that uh, gives him that gift, it allows him to go around to people in his orbit, and uh, basically zap them and allow them to forget the most painful things about their lives. And what he finds out is by doing that, he also removes the things that make them that make them special, unique, and and ultimately loving. And the great climax of the book is when it comes to his, uh, I think his nurse, uh, who had it turns out who's who's the kindest, most Christ-like person around. And it turns out she had not been able to have children or had one child, and it was a stillbirth. And this experience she's grateful for and she thinks about it every day and how her child in heaven um it feels for all other children and it makes her want to go serve it's it's and the guy just starts he has a breakdown and he thanks christ for his suffering on the cross it's unbelievably powerful it's you know 90 pages i haven't done it justice but i know that what he's trying to say is that somehow, in some way that we'll never fully understand, but that the Christian story, the Christian faith holds at its center, is that suffering and redemption um, and love are all inextricably linked. And if you take if you take one sort of leg out from the stool, it all collapses. And um, yeah. I wish it weren't the case. Oftentimes, like. Um, but it seems to be uh, true, especially uh, during Advent, uh, when Lord knows these readings that we read are just about the worst things. That I mean, here you have John the Baptist, who was then served up on a silver platter, and that was somehow not out of sync with God's <laughs> redemptive plan in the world. But I'm just thinking about Charles Dickens as relates to Rob Delaney and this remarkable. Because when in that Sarah, when when he talks to Gail. King, you see a moment of reality in the midst of on a, on a scripted television or just sort of major television, n- network television, you don't always see, but there's something that happens and she's sort of shocked that he says it. Um, yeah. And it's it's similar to what uh, it's Anderson Cooper said to Colbert about people yeah. telling him stories about their own grief and like... yeah, And that show Catastrophe like captures that idea in such a wonderful, funny quirky way where it's about two people who are just constantly making massive mistakes and yet being sort of falling upwards, constantly falling, like falling into a marriage, falling into having children, falling into unexpectedly and through their own brokenness. And it's, it's a really poignant. And if you haven't watched catastrophe, that is a great show and very profound. Well, RJ, what are you (laughs) preaching about on Christmas? Do you tell us, can you, do you have any idea yet? I don't know. Maybe Rob Delaney. It might be, I might be preaching about Rob Delaney. I'm thinking like, maybe that's what I need to preach about. And just, yeah, 
I don't I don't know. I'm not there yet. That's like ten days away. So we'll see. Well, um, thank you guys both. It's been a I can't believe it's been another year of the mocking cast and uh grateful for you as always. I hope you do have a good uh Christmas and that um there's this uh, there's an amazing song that Sandra McCracken wrote called The Space Between, which is about the time between the twenty fifth and the and New Year's Day. And I just I'm looking forward to that time uh for myself, but I'm also looking forward to it for you, RJ, and for all those who are working at churches so tirelessly during this time. That that space between. I hope you get it. And I hope it's uh, all that you can... Oh, we could, you could also binge the new season of Last Chance You uh, with John Mosley, which Ooh. just came out, which I'm about to watch. Nice. Um, while uh, reading Kobe Campbell's book and, uh, you know, a, a, perhaps binging The Chosen as well. I mean, we're, we're, we're equal <laughs> opportunity here. Do it all this Christmas. Um, <laughs> I won't say why. Ah! <laughs> Thank you, guys. Merry Christmas to you. Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas to you. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time.